because that's what we're talking about today. So as you know, Lindy's a weekly columnist at The Guardian and a culture writer for GQ. Uh, she's written for feminist blog Jezebel, prolific writer. She's also a live performer and commentator, and her book is Shrill Notes from a Loud Woman. It's a bestseller. And what I love about it, Lindy, is when you say that your mum taught you to chop up sadness into small enough things to laugh at. But I think this book takes really big things and it cleaves them together with the personal, um, from fat shaming, emotional violence against women online, to about who we are, family relationships and slaying trolls, but with compassion. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. It will make you laugh and in the interests of the great amount of bodily functions in the book, it may make you pee a little. <laughs> so, Lindy West, give her another one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, I think what we all love about your book is that the personal is so political. And we'll talk more about this, but just tell us, for those who haven't read it, about... You talk about the long process to being a shy person, to a woman who can command an opera house stage like this. For women who want to start demanding to be seen and heard and claim their place, where is the best place to start? That's such a good question. I mean, that's kind of the question behind the whole book. You know, I was trying to figure this out for myself. My life now is so different from my life uh, when I was a teenager and what I, what I thought I could be and what, where I saw myself going, which was basically just a big blank. I didn't, you know, as a young, fat girl, you don't have a lot of positive role models, if you have any role models at all. Um, there weren't, when I was growing up, there weren't, like, fat, characters in TV shows unless it was an episode about don't be fat <laughs> or, you know, sometimes a fat person would be used as, you know, the victim in a special episode about bullying. Like, don't bully fat people, but the fat person's not really a fat person. So sort of my, and then you had um, sort of like fat monster people like Ursula, who, the sea witch, who I love, but <laughs> not super relatable when you're eight. Um, or... Uh, you know, they're like mother figures. And so I grew up with no other model. And I didn't know, I did, and I, I don't think I articulated that to myself at the time, like, huh, I have, no, I have no positive role models. What shall I be? It was just the state of confusion. And um, so how did I? I don't know. <laughs> so I write about this a lot in the book. Like, I was incredibly shy. I, had, I was not driven. I had no goals. I had no way to place myself in the world. And... Um, on top of that, you have the, the social conditioning that we put on all women and girls, which is, you know, that it's your job to be a very, very narrow set of, to meet a narrow set of criteria, to be, to be small and thin and pretty and quiet and helpful and compliant instead of, um, you know, rigid and loud and um, assertive. And so, anyway, somehow I ended up this person... And I guess where I started was just dismantling in tiny little pieces the concept of embarrassment. I was really afraid of drawing any extra attention to myself, I think because I already knew that my body was going to get me made fun of, and so I didn't want to do anything where I might screw up and get made fun of 
you know, another layer of mockery. <laughs> um, and so I was just afraid of everything. I was afraid of talking. I was afraid of, you know, walking across the room in front of people. I, you know, I was afraid of wearing a weird outfit, even if I liked it. Um, I talk in the book about peeing my pants in third grade because I was afraid of asking the teacher if I could go to the bathroom. And like I knew, it wasn't the first day of school, not that that would even be normal, but it was like, I knew her, she was my teacher. <laughs> anyway, um, and so I started when I was in maybe, when I was four, 13, 14, I remember I had to make a presentation in front of the class and I was just terrified and I remember thinking, sort of leaving my body <laughs> and having this analytical moment of what is the danger here? Like what actually on a practical level could happen if I do a bad job on my presentation? Nothing, literally not, I mean, and you know, I came to, I had, came to this sort of logical uh, conclusion that nothing could happen. And then, so then I pushed through and I did my presentation and it was fine, because no one listens anyway, it was boring. Um, it's school, <laughs> who cares? And then, I mean, everyone should care, school's important, but. <laughs> and then I just started doing, I started like, okay, what would, what's the worst that could happen if I raise my hand right now and get this question wrong? Nothing. Nothing. And I started testing myself and pushing further and further. And eventually that became, you know, things like, what if I expressed this opinion in my column that I know people hate? <laughs> you know, that I know, um, like, what if I, what if I, um, you know, as a woman in the comedy community, what if I critique, what if I criticize men for talking about rape? Uh, which, you know, when I started writing about that, it was very entrenched that, you know, it's just, it's just comedy, it's just jokes. You can't criticize what other people say in their comedy because then you're gonna destroy comedy and you hate freedom of speech. And it, there was this moment where I was like, okay, I, I, I feel very secure in the fact that I'm right. <laughs> so what's the worst that can happen if I go down with this ship, you know? Like, I, you know, the, the worst that can happen is that I, I did, I stood up for something that I believed in yeah. and bad people ruined my life because of it, you know, which, I, which didn't end up happening. It, w it went great. I mean, it was horrible and a lot of people sent me mean letters, um, <laughs> but I survived and I, you know, I still have a career, so. Yeah, well, let's... I lost track of the original question. <laughs> Yeah, it, you, you're a powerful force now, and it's made you strong. Um, and, and I think a lot of people in this, in the audience here today, would admire that strength because they said, "What would be the worst thing that happened?" But I think there's one point where you say you had 30 rape jokes before breakfast. That's one of the worst things that could happen to sure. people and <laughs> and the like. And and so we should talk about how you how you took that on and how you dealt with it. But you, but you said that, that your childhood also, the internalised shame is such a powerful force, but it made you strong. It, you, you used that as an opportunity. Yeah, I think um, uh, sort of growing up fat and feeling um, like I existed outside of my gender, like there was always this very powerful feeling that I had failed at being a girl because my job as a girl was to be sort of sexually pleasing to men, and they let me know that I was, did not qualify. Um, and, I, and it was really alienating. Uh, and, but then I sort of, at a certain point, realized that that tension is a gift and an opportunity, because I, simply by presenting my body to the world and insisting that it has value and that, that I 
um, don't have to hide and that I don't have to be quiet and I don't have to spend my entire life apologizing and trying to change my body into a, a shape that other people like, um, that is political and that freaks people out. And freaking people out is the first step to social change, I guess. Um, and it was just such a, you know, I, it was like, you, um, it was just such an opportunity uh, with, to, to realize that, um, you know, even if I didn't write anything at all, and this is where I started getting into to fat activism, wasn't even reading, reading written work, it was just looking at pictures of fat people on the internet, specifically like fat people smiling. <laughs> And like wearing a cute outfit. That was revolutionary to me. And um, yeah, it was, that helped a lot, I think, with that journey of, of learning how to not hate and fear my own body and the, the potential that I, I could be fat for the rest of my life. Because that was really the thing, you know, when I was a teenager, it was like I had to believe that this was a temporary state um, and that I was just a thin person who was, who was failing every day. And I couldn't even think to myself, that I might be fat forever. And then that was the thing that I had to get past. Like, okay, if, say I am gonna be fat forever, which statistically, you know, it's like 95% of diets fail. Most people who are fat stay fat. Um, what if that's, if that's my fate, what kind of a life do I want? Do I want to be the kind of person who hides and apologizes and is miserable and waits, like I was waiting for my life to start? Or do I wanna stride out into the world Stop and- living advocate for myself and for other people like me uh, and start living. Yeah. And you, you talk about also about, um, you know, assumptions about being unlovable. And so for you, you know, simple acts um, that are huge events in your life are hard to depoliticize. And you wanted a public marriage um, proposal. So, you know, what is not political? Because so, I mean, this is what your book is about, how even the very personal of our life is, has such implications. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing to that story. Um, <laughs> I think it's beautiful. No, I, know. I love it. My husband proposed, my husband proposed to me in like a, he, he or orchestrated a surprise party. So like everyone we knew was there. It was my birthday. So I thought it was just my birthday party. But then there, I was like, why are there strings? <laughs> like, why is he crying? And then it was a proposal. <laughs> and, that, and, and that's not exactly how, how we operate. Like, we're pretty private and uh, socially awkward. And so, uh, and like, we just stay in our house. And so, um, but I you asked, said to him, I, yeah. yeah, I asked him later why he did that. And he was like, don't, you don't remember? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, you were drunk one time. You, you demanded a public proposal if I ever proposed. Because, uh, you know, the way that, you know, like on YouTube where there'll be like proposal video, it's always like these men want to show off to the world that they're winning this prize of like this beautiful, thin girl, like perfect 10 or whatever disgusting way people talk about women. Um, <laughs> And I, and I was like, it's not even like I even believe in that paradigm yeah. or even marriage as a concept. But it was, I was like, if, if, if thin girls get to have that, then fat girls should get to have it too. And you should, do, you should show everyone that you are not settling for me. You are, you are so pumped to marry me. <laughs> I don't remember, <laughs> I don't remember saying that. 
But it's, it does sound like something I would say. <laughs> I believe it. It's just an expression of value. Yeah, it's like, totally. And it's, yeah. It, 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 I'm conflicted because we, yeah. we um, sort of uh, frame women as a, a status symbol and like a thing that you get. Like you get the girl and then you have, the, you have a girl, which is gross. Um, and I don't want to be a part of that, but it is. At the same time, if, if that's the system we're going to live in, I, it is meaningful to say, you know, that fat women have value and that, I, that we're not a last resort and we're not... Because yeah. um, the way that people treat us in public, women come up to him and, like, hit on him, and there's this feeling that if he were to leave me for a more conventionally attractive woman, that some sort of the balance of the universe would be righted, you know? <laughs> Uh, it's really, really entrenched. So, yeah, I guess I, I just wanted to push back against that a little bit. Yeah. It's so conflicting, though, being a feminist. It's, it's, so, hard. Yeah, it's so hard. I know. you got to just live and yeah. try to do your best. Yeah. <laughs> so now, you know, your book Shrill celebrates, you know, the statement of refusing to be a quiet woman sitting in the corner and being ashamed of her opinions and her body. And you said, what's the worst thing that can happen? But you did have horrendous online harassment. It saturated your life. Uh, you say at one point in the last half a decade. Um, so many of us shrink from this. We kind of cry and regroup and we're told to block and everything. Um, but you actually, one of the things you're most proud of is when you went on national radio and you confronted one of your trolls who had written to you after your beautiful, much-loved father had died, pretending, like, with the photo of your father and as it was an email from your dad. Tell us about what you, what he said and what you learned from that. Um, and why that was so important to do. Yeah, so he was just harassing me on Twitter. I don't remember what it was about. It was the usual stuff I get. It was like, you're fat and, I, and you suck. Um, just, you know. Um, but the, it had my dad's picture and it had his name and then the bio said, uh, embarrassed father of an idiot, location, dirt hole in Seattle. And... Uh, it was just, especially at, at that time, and I think that online harassment has, has evolved since then, and even that level of uh, emotional violence has become a little bit more normalized. Like, I've had that happen to me now more times. <laughs> I've had, like, copycats. Um, but at the time, it was especially just shocking to, to a, a, anyone who I, I spoke to about it. Um, now, you know, now I, I know people who've had, you know, much... Similar and even worse things happened to them. But at the time, it was like, whoa! Um, and so I, I really didn't feel satisfied with the conventional wisdom at, of the day, which was don't feed the trolls, don't ever respond, pretend like it, it didn't happen, pretend like they didn't get to you, pretend like they don't exist. Um, because if you don't, you're just encouraging them. And to me, that always felt like Expecting us to, to pretend like we feel nothing and like this does nothing to us, that is a really damaging. I mean, that, that really normalizes the behavior. Uh, expecting people to pretend as though it has no impact is, it, it, it really, um, what's the word I want? Like it trivializes it, you know? And so I was like, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna do that and so I, wrote about it in an essay for Jezebel, and um, the next day, the guy, who of course read the article, because these people are creepy stalkers and read everything that you do, um, 
emailed me and he was like, oh, I read your articles uh, and I'm the guy, sorry. <laughs> I, he said, um, he said, your happiness served to highlight my unhappiness with myself. Um, and he said, you know, he basically said, this is the worst thing I've ever done. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm so sorry. Like, it really clicked when I read your article that you're a person um, <laughs> who's never done anything to me and that I was hurting you on purpose. And so um, I ended up writing back to him and um, about a year later, I, because uh, that, that's how long this process took, but um, I, you know, I pitched a, I was like, this would be a great radio story if I could actually get this guy on the phone. And we ended up doing it about a year later. I, got, I finally sat down with him and, and talked on the phone for about two and a half hours. And predictably, um, you know, this was a guy who, was, who hated his body. He was lonely. He'd gone through a breakup. He hated his job. Um, he was just a miserable guy. And the, the things that he cited specifically about me were being happy with my body, being happy in general, <laughs> um, and that I'm a woman who doesn't speak the way that women are supposed to speak. He specifically said that, and that it was very threatening. And so, um, so the the big takeaway, and it was it was just very it was actually I was actually really proud of him, which was the weirdest thing. I said this to him at the end of our conversation because he had. He had done so much, especially in just in the intervening year, so much work on himself and f so much reflection and, tr and fi trying to figure out what was wrong with him. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, he did the worst thing that anyone's ever done to me, but he was also the only one who ever apologized. And it it's put, put me in a weird position. Um, yeah. But I, I was just, it's hard to change, and I was actually proud of him. And anyway, the, a lot of people want to take that story as sort of prescriptive, like here's how you should handle trolls, which is not the case. <laughs> it's not gonna work. Um, I really think that this guy was anomalous. Uh, I've never had this happen again. Um, but what was really educational about it was the, how honest he was about every, it coming entirely from a place of pain and failure. And the fact that he was a very quote unquote normal guy. He wasn't like a weird monster. He was a guy with a family, with a mom and sisters and um, romantic relationships and a job, and that's who these people are. You know, it's really easy to sort of exceptionalize them and, and pretend like they're just... Um, monsters. Monsters, yeah. and they're not, and that's what's... That's the key. You know, these are your sons and your brothers and your husbands and your bosses, and, you know, it's... Um, we, can't, we can't lose sight of the fact that misogyny is normal, um, I, I think misogynists would really like us to believe that misogyny doesn't exist. Um, but it's not. It's normalized to the point where normal people uh, blow off steam or work out their own personal insecurities by abusing, stalking, and harassing women. So that's what I learned. Yeah, but what are you meant to do with that? So you can go, okay, this comes from your pain and you're a loser and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, it's still... Yeah. You know, violating your right to speak right. and to, to be feel safe and not be emotionally, you know, yeah. emotional violence. So how, what do you do with that? Yeah, you have to find a balance. You have to, it's, it's a tough balance to find. Um, you know, I, so much of my work is telling 
women especially to set boundaries and hold those boundaries and um, don't don't give in to your impulse to soothe people and make people feel okay when they're hurting you um, you know which is something I had to do in that phone call um, you know yeah. I had to it, it, he was really upset and yeah. I and really embarrassed and it was really it was hard for me to refrain from trying to make him feel better um, and I guess maybe that's a good model you know I, I did I held I didn't I didn't soothe him um, and I made sure, but I was kind and fair, mm. and I made sure that I didn't let him off the hook. Like, I made him tell me what he did in detail, and I, I didn't let him avoid the more uncomfortable parts of the conversation, but I wasn't cruel. Yeah. But that said, my God, are we, we're not allowed to ever, like, swipe back well, at Well, that's the thing, you're who, kind when they're cruel, but, I mean... Sometimes I'm cruel, though, because it's, sometimes, like, sometimes... Okay, you're human. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and I also don't want this to be a consequence-free hobby. You know, sometimes it's, sometimes it has value to just, you know, whack someone down, <laughs> you know? Um, so, basically... It's a case-by-case basis. (laughs) Um, I I generally just err on the side of what would make me feel best in this moment. (laughs) And sometimes it feels good to try to get through to them. And sometimes it feels good to be like, oh, fuck off. (laughs) You know? Okay, let's let's talk a bit about the states. Uh, We now have the leader of the trolls. The troll god is the leader of the U.S. (laughs) I know you talked a bit about um, Donald Trump this morning. Um, it's all any of us can talk. I mean, why <sighs> no? Do you want to hear about it? I mean, <laughs> what do you want to say about um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton as well? Because you didn't really talk about Hillary this morning. Um, what is it showing us? Because your book is so optimistic, and then this happened, Lindy. I know. <laughs> I, know. I, I, I actually, um, and I'm so sorry. I wrote a a, a new intro for the book. Um, but the, I think the UK version slash the Australian version was published earlier than my US version, so it didn't make it in. But the, what the intro says is like, oh my God, I'm so sorry I told you to be hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, because the book is very, very like, yeah. <laughs> They're, they're scared because we're winning and, like, you hold the world in your hands and we can shape it how we... Which I still kind of believe. <laughs> but, my God. Um, you know, it, it's funny because I, I do write about some, these, these forces in the book, these people who coalesce behind Donald Trump, and I write about this sort of last gasp of, of white male patriarchy. Um, and I just didn't think that they would gasp so hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Pretty big gasp. Yeah, like I... Do you still think it's a last gasp? Uh, I hope so. I mean, it, it's still the same concept. Like, they're, they are... They're losing ground. Um, or they were. But I just don't think you can stop progress. I don't think that you genuinely can roll back progress. I think it's inevitable, and I think um, we are just... We're in a tough spot. And, but, you know, there's a reason why they're doing everything they can, not just to seize power, but to dismantle the system and dismantle our avenues of, um, of getting power back uh, by democratic means. And so, you know, that's how scared they are. You know what I mean? 
which isn't very, which isn't encouraging because really I do believe that he, that Donald Trump is trying to make it so that the U.S. never has another fair election again. Um, but that said, so many people are mobilized, so many people are um, angry and becoming political, people who weren't political before. I mean, the thing about the states is that millions and millions and millions of people didn't vote at all and just assumed that it would be fine and that, you know, there's a grown-up in charge who takes care of, who takes care of things. And um, people are, a lot of people are waking up to the fact that that's not true and that we are the grown-ups and we have to do it, <laughs> you know? It's shown a lot of faults in the system. The apparently, the American government operates on the honor system. I did not realize, but apparently, if you just decide that you don't have to f follow any rules, then you could just do whatever you want. It's so bizarre. Like, he's done, he's violated so many laws. <laughs> like, uh, and, and then we're like, oh, this, surely this is the, the one. <laughs> no, it's never the one. I mean, and that was happening in the, in the campaign. It was like, oh, surely the, the sexual assault Situation. Surely, can you imagine if Hillary had a child rape charge during the <laughs> during the campaign? Donald Trump was charged with rape of a child, or he was accused at least. I don't know if they. I, I think she ended up recanting because she was. Well, who knows what happened? But um, I, I mean, Hillary, like they had to grab, they had to stretch so far to find something to roast Hillary over. Well, there's that great Saturday Night Live sketch where, where they're going, you know, the pussy grabbing, the emails, you know, the everything, there's this litany. But what did that show? I mean, you said people are mobilising, but you know, our ex-Prime Minister has said recently that Donald Trump was about um, people voting against political correctness and the feeling that feminism's gone too far and, you know, there's, we can't be say what we think about well, race and the like. Sorry. Am I allowed to <laughs> You just did. Right, no, sorry. <laughs> What did it, um, so you said through all this though, given that, yeah, there was a, a huge amount about who didn't vote and the like, but well, what, what keeps you still hopeful then? Oh, am I hopeful? You just said <laughs> you were. You I said I was I... at the end of the book and then I wasn't, but you still hold I it. I go back and forth. Yeah, um, no. <laughs> I mean, what's, what's hopeful is, uh, you know, we do still have this window, which is, you know, maybe rapidly closing, but we have this window where our numbers are still powerful. And what it's hinging on right now is Congress, the Republican-controlled Congress. Um, can we get through to them that if they don't do their jobs and represent us and protect us from tyranny, um, that we will vote them out of office? Except the problem is that they're, they're clearly like, well, we could just go with the tyranny and then you can't vote us out of office. Um, and, and, but right now we still have, like the system is still semi-functioning, the judiciary is functioning, uh, the press is functioning, and the intelligence community is functioning. And so my hope is that, um, you know, and now he's going after Obama, who was hugely popular. Uh, and I, my hope is that they're just playing their hand a little too early and yeah. too aggressively and that we can still, um, you know, we have vastly greater numbers. I mean, the number of people that actually are diehard Trump supporters is relatively small. And so the more people that we can politicize and mobilize and get through their heads that, you know, they're going to die without health care, um, the better, you know. So that's what I cling to. You know, the fact that people are paying attention, many for the first time in their lives, and um, 
it just takes a lot of on-the-ground work, you know, going, actually going to town halls, um, running for local office, getting involved in your community, calling your representatives, doing all these things that many, many of us left to other people to do. Yeah, someone else will do it. Yeah. The other hope, of course, I think that's reflected in your book is a really exciting resurgence of a new generation of, of feminists, and you're very much a part of that. It's, it's in the US, it's all around Australia as well and around the world. Um, what excites you about uh, this, and where is the work still to do, do you feel, for your generation? Um, I mean, there's always work to do. The work is always, for me, um, no, no, I mean, the, the work is in intersectionality. So the work is in, especially when you have all these new activists coming in, you know, wanting to contribute, is making sure that white women are aware um, that, you know, it's their, that it, you're, not, you're not an activist if you're not taking care of the most marginalized people and um, prioritizing the most marginalized people. And, you know, if you're just... So, uh, feminism without intersectionality is just white supremacy. And so, it's... That is the biggest challenge, because some of these ideas are really difficult for people who've never confronted them before, and there's a lot of very defensive white people. Like, well, I'm not, I'm not racist. Why should I be sorry about slavery? <laughs> like, well, what are you, are you really asking that question? And yes, they ask it all the time. Um, and, you know, the answer is that you benefit from the legacy of slavery. Uh, your grandparents are these, you know, people who were trying to keep black children out of integrated schools. Um, you know, you can't actually separate yourself from systems of oppression, especially when you are... Um, benefiting from them every day. And so making sure that feminism keeps, like, let's see, uh, prioritizes uh, anti-racism, anti-Islamophobia, uh, anti-ableism, um, you know, God, trans rights. It, it, there's so many things under attack in Trump's America. I honestly, when I, like, uh, abortion is going to be a huge issue. It's really, really scary. Reproductive health is, is going to be huge. Um, but there are so many other things on the list. Like, it, it's... I think the challenge is going to be keeping everyone's eye on every ball uh, and making sure that people don't fall back into self-interest, which is really, really easy. Mm. Uh, and that you don't stop. Like, if you, if you achieve a victory in your issue, um, you don't stop there. You don't stop until every, every single freedom is defended and, you know, otherwise you've accomplished nothing. I think you're right. I think intersectionality is the really exciting thing that's happening and, and you have admitted that whiteness is a bubble. So when do you stay, you know, in a book that says about shrill and about being loud, when do you stay quiet for others to speak out about things that matter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a huge... I mean, there's been a huge issue already, even since the inauguration, uh, where all these people are getting involved in politics for the first time, and then they're thinking to themselves, and in a very well-meaning way, but, oh, I'm going to start an organization. I'm going to start an organization that's going to advocate for XYZ. And it's like, no, 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 no. These organizations already exist because millions of people have already been oppressed for the entirety of the history of the country. <laughs> Go find the people who not only have already been doing this, but are much, much better at it than you, understand the issues much better, understand the system, and how to, how to advocate within the system, how to change the system. Um, and so, you know, sometimes, not sometimes, 
the majority of the time, people with privilege and people in power, um, if they really are interested in changing the system, you have to spend most of your time shutting up and listening and making sure that um, you're not telling people, you know, you're not dictating to other people what they need. Uh, what you need to do is, is uh, run backup, you know? <laughs> like, you need to use, you need to leverage your privilege and your power in every way that you can, and you need to, to follow rather than lead. We have time for questions, and I'm sure there'll be many. Um, there's microphone, I can see one there, and one there, so make your way down to the microphone if you have a question for Lindy. And uh, yes, do make it a question if you can. Um, the other exciting thing is you are now working on a TV yeah. show about the book. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Can you say anything? Yeah, sure. Um, so the Shrill was optioned by um, Elizabeth Banks, who's an actress. She has a production company. And so we're just, the process of making a TV show is like 10,000 years long and very, very slow. <laughs> so um, basically we've just been, um, right now we're in the most like baby, tiny, stage where all we're just still figuring out what the show's going to look like. Um, and it'll be a comedy based on, like, I, I will be the character. Uh, and it'll, it's based on me. And it'll be a, a comedy about sort of this moment in my life that the book describes where, you know, I'm figuring out how to be a person and who, who I want to be and how to advocate for myself. And that sounds really boring, but it'll be funny. Um, <laughs> Because women can be funny. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> you, you, you won't believe it. Um, but yeah, so we're still in this phase where we're just working it, working it out. Like, yeah. what are we going to do? Right. And then we take it out and pitch it to networks probably this summer. And then we'll find out if anyone wants it. And yeah. then there are 100 more opportunities for failure after that. So <laughs> probably you'll never see it, but yeah. we'll see. We haven't talked about comedy and what's funny. But let's take some questions uh, down here, number one. Yes. Hi, Lindy. My name's Carol. Over here. Oh, hi. hi. <laughs> um, I, was, I just got confused because of the speaker. <laughs> I'm over here. Carol's trapped in a little box. Are you, are you okay? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, Hello. Hi there. Um, I found myself nodding when you were talking about um, feeling that you weren't worthy because of your size at school. I had a similar problem. I wasn't big. I was hairy. Also very, very bad. Um, I now have a daughter who is probably going to be hairy. I invested heavily in laser hair removal, so I'm okay. But I know why I was made to feel bad about being hairy. I get the whole structure and, you know, you should look a certain way and being hairy is not feminine. How do I pass that on to her and get her to think about why society likes women to be hair free when I'm hair free, except for my lady garden, because I'm a lady, I'm a woman. Um, <laughs> how, do I, how do I pass that on to her? <laughs> how do I pass on the messages yeah. um, in a society that still values uh, hairlessness? I mean, it's so hard, it's so complicated because, you know, I wanna be like, you tell her that she should go out there and be like, be brave and like, yeah, I'm hairy. You can't put that on a child. That's incredibly difficult. It's, school is terrifying and kids are really cruel. Um, and so, you know, I, I have boundless sympathy for her having to go through that. It's gonna, you know, I mean, I watch my daughters, uh, they're 13 and 15 and it's tough. Like, it is really, really cruel. Um, so I just think, I think it's easy to be like, yeah, 
tell her to give them hell. <laughs> like, but um, I think honesty is really, really helpful. And you know, if um, I, I think it can't hurt for you to be really honest. Like, yeah, I know how hard this is. It's so hard that I spent a lot of money having all the hair burned off my body with a laser. You know, <laughs> I mean, seriously, like. I, I feel like that's, that's actually a really, really powerful message. Um, and I think just talking, talking, talking and, and making sure that she's aware that um, this isn't real, like it's a construct and it's a system um, and it's a, a, an imposed hierarchy on women's bodies uh, that, you know, that people make billions of dollars off of. The beauty industry is a massive industry. Um, I, I, like kids are really smart, you know? Like I, I feel like, there's no reason why she can't comprehend that. And, um, you know, eventually you become an adult and the people around you gain some perspective and it's, it gets better, you know? But I, there's not a perfect way to do it unless, unless you cave and you're like, yeah, sure, you can get, I mean, I don't know, I had friends in high school who I, I didn't, I don't know if I knew it at the time, but even middle school who would get get their arms waxed, like get their whole bodies waxed, basically. And it's tough, because it's like, I wouldn't want my children to feel like they had to cave to that stigma, but also I want them to be able to survive in school and thrive and be happy and not be tortured every day. I mean, really, I feel like you're more qualified to answer this question than I am. <laughs> um, I mean, but if, you know, I guess if, to, ma to make an analogy, if, I, if my daughter was fat and was being tormented every day and said, you know, I want to get lap band surgery or something, um, I, I don't, I think we would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about it uh, and, and make sure that, uh, you know, there's a lot of like body positive beauty activism that happens on the internet. Like if you can find, um, body positive blogs for her to read or Instagrams for her to follow. Stuff like that is really helpful, but yeah, it's, it's tough. Some of these questions, I don't, I don't know the right answer, but um, you seem really well equipped to lead her through it anyway. And how many times do you get like a clapping for having pubic hair? I mean, really. <laughs> <laughs> Only at Sydney Opera House <laughs> on this day of the year. We'll go over to a question from the second microphone. Hi there. Hi. I take it, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you spoke a lot about how the personal is political and about setting boundaries and being afraid. Um, and I'm afraid this is also a teenage-related question. I have a 16-year-old in my life who opened up to me recently about having starting to have sex and had had it with a few separate people and not once had been brave enough to ask them to use a condom. And she said it was because she was mortally afraid of being mocked by the man. And it destroyed me that she's been brought up in a world that tells her a man's satisfaction is more important than her health and safety. And I just, I've tried to talk to her, but she thinks I'm out of touch and old and feminism is lame and, you know, she's just <laughs> too cool at the moment. Um, and I just want to know, you spoke about, you know, not always being open to that way of thinking either. And what things can I put in her path to make her understand that oh, man. she comes first? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's just devastating. It um, really is. Yeah, uh, and it's so pervasive. You know, mm -hmm. that's, I, I'm sure, not, not an unusual situation. Yeah. What's really devastating. Um, I don't, I mean, God, if you're, you look so young and cool. Because <laughs> I would be like, oh, find someone like hers to talk to. <laughs> um, 
you know, what I do with my kids is what, whether it seems like they're listening to me or not, I know that they sort of are or things eventually get through. So I just yell a lot <laughs> about feminism all the time. And like they're kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, it filters through. And then later I hear stories from them like, oh, someone at school said this thing. And then I told them, you know, to shut up or whatever. <laughs> Only cooler because they're cool. But um, I mean, I don't know. Like what I, I guess are, you know, there are there must be sort of publications for teens. Like, do you have Rookie here? Um, there, there are, in the States, there are a lot of really cool like blogs and websites that aren't written by adults. They're written by teens talking to other teens, which is really helpful because, yeah, like they don't, no one wants to listen to me. Um, uh, but it's hard. I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I just think all you can do is put the information out there, make it available, like force these conversations, even if it seems like they're not interested or they're not getting through, um, and get angry. I think getting visibly angry um, sometimes is jarring. Like if, someone, if, a, if a cool teen can see that something's actually getting to you emotionally in a, in a powerful way, it's like, oh, okay, this is, a, this is some real shit, you know? Um, and yeah, I mean, just be there. Just, just be there and show up and, and stay on message and hold, the, hold that line, you know? Yeah, the one solace I took was that she at least told me. Yeah, that's, that's big. Like, she's, she probably has to, uh, you know, she has to uh, try to be cool, try to appear cool. But, you know, it's a time of, of huge confusion and doubt. And I, you know, I know my, my daughters are definitely, like, casting around for people that they can trust to talk to about their problems, um, whether they show that on the surface or not, you know? Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Good luck. Question over here. Hi. Hi. Um, I think I can make a generalization here and say everyone in this room is on the left. Um, what, as, even though we're in Australia and, and our left is perhaps not as uh, vehemently represented as the left in the States, um, I was wondering if you could perhaps speak to what the left did wrong to lose the unlosable election. That's not showing up. That's not not showing up to vote. Uh, sure. I mean... First of all, um, Hillary won by three million votes. She got three million more votes than Donald Trump. So I do think that we often start from this sort of fallacy that she did a terrible job and lost. Um, the right exploited uh, some loopholes in our system, the Electoral College. They also engaged in uh, aggressive and strategic voter suppression. So they denied the vote of a lot of especially poor brown people in certain districts to turn those uh, states for Trump. So, but I understand, I mean, but of course, yeah, of course the left um, makes mistakes. I think, I mean, and, and you're, this is probably not the answer that you want. I'm sure, you know, a lot of people want me to be like, yeah, Hillary was a terrible candidate. We should never have nominated her. We should have, you know, it should have been, Bernie would have won, whatever. Um, but I, I do think that one thing that the, <laughs> the left does that is, sort of central to the ideology and also so damaging is we're so focused on, <laughs> like, it was so rare to read an article, even in the days when it was clear that the election was getting kind of scary, that was just like, Hillary should be the president, 
she's great, here's why. Like we got so fixated on like, okay, well, I can write a pro-Hillary article, but the first eight paragraphs have to be a list of all the things I hate about Hillary. And you know, Hillary, there's plenty of things to criticize about Hillary, but I think that our, we fall into this trap of never sort of showing any sort of any level of power because we always want to make sure that we're being we're appeasing every single person and that was harmful because a lot of that is anti-hillary propaganda that was really really entrenched uh, and again that's not to hold hillary to or to not, not to let hillary off the hook for her many mistakes but we held hillary to the standard that male politicians are never held to and these vi these like right i mean if if it had been a male politician with Hillary's record, I'm sorry, but this would not have happened. That it would not have gone down like that. And for all of Hillary's flaws, I, I'm in the camp that this comes down to misogyny and to the decades-long uh, smear campaign against Hillary that, um, you know, I, ju I just know so many people who think of themselves as apolitical who don't even know any, of, any substantive cr critiques of Hillary. They just know that, like, I don't really like Hillary. And that's because the last 30 years, people have been hammering away at Hillary's credibility, making up bizarre scandals about Hillary. Um, and it's not really about policy at all. So that's my opinion. And I think the left caved to that a lot. Um, you know, people like me, people in my profession, people who are writing op-eds about this election. I mean, even I did it. Like, I was really cautious because I wanted to make sure that um, I wasn't overlooking anyone's legitimate complaint, and that's real. See, and now I'm falling into it again. Um, I, I just think that the right is so ruthless and so willing to just be monsters in order to, to retain power that, and I, and I don't want to be that, but, you know, see, now I'm just going, I'm getting lost in my own. Yeah, but I'm glad you brought up Dr. Hillary and that level of accountability and the standards she was held to were right. definitely different. It was There's no doubt it about was it. egregious, I think. Okay. Can we have the next yeah. question? We go back over to number two and then we'll go one and that we should get them all in. Okay. Great dress. <laughs> numb to it like he keeps on doing things and you kind of don't start to care or read about it almost especially in Australia um, how do we remain shocked when something so abnormal almost becomes normal That's true. Um, I saw the tweet about Donald Trump put out it early in the morning I was on the radio in the early hours of this morning and I saw the tweet about Barack Obama was um, wiretapping Trump Tower and I went oh yeah yeah, I didn't I, even I go. Mean, what? No, it's it's a huge danger, and people are already falling into it. You know, he gave one semi-coherent speech, and people are like, "Ugh, amazing!" Because you know, and in a in a in an almost sympathetic way, you know, you can tell how scared people are and how desperate they are to believe that this might be okay. Uh, it's not going to be okay. It's already not okay. People are dying. People's families are being torn apart. Um, it's incredibly dangerous, and and um, we can't lose sight of that. So I think it's just, you know, it's, it's everyone's responsibility to keep, um, you know, to almost have a mantra, like it's not, you know, we can't be complacent and we can't get used to this. It's not normal, it's absolutely not normal. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of my jobs as a, as a columnist, is continuing to, um, to 
bring these back up and not letting them die. I mean, that's something, again, that the right is really, really good at. I mean, my God, Benghazi went on for years. The email thing, years, years. And despite both being found to, you know, completely devoid of substance. Um, and then Donald, every single thing they've accused Hillary of, Donald Trump has now already done, <laughs> you know, only for real. Um, and it's just, it's just bizarre. But um, I don't know, it's, it's hard for me to answer because I don't feel myself, I, haven't, I don't feel like I've lost any of my feelings of horror. <laughs> but I, I know that people are. And I, I you know, it's just, keep talking about it, keep um, communicating with the, the people around you, and <sighs> It just kind of seems like with the women's march as well, like everyone got involved, and then it's just disappeared. Like, well, um, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. It hasn't been not that... completely, obviously. I'm in a room full you know, of... <laughs> yeah, and in the States, uh, you know, when the, the Muslim ban was signed... Within an hour, yeah. the Seattle airport was full of people. Airports all over the country were full of protesters. Mm -hmm. um, it hasn't been that long since he was inaugurated. It feels like a lifetime, yeah. but you know, <laughs> it's like just over a month. Um, it's it, so I don't think I don't know that that energy has dissipated. I think um, I, there's a Black Lives Matter march in Seattle today. Um, I haven't. Uh, well, I guess it's I don't know what day it is. Maybe it might be tomorrow <laughs> in Seattle. <laughs> Um, like, I mean, I think the march is Sunday, but it's still Saturday in Seattle. Yeah, anyway, yeah. what I'm saying, so I don't know, I don't know yet what the numbers are, but I see at least everyone that I know, everyone in my community, in my circles is going, is going out to march. And, and so, I, you know, we've seen from the tactics on the right that yelling and yelling and yelling and never shutting up is effective. <laughs> and so... Um, that's something that I think the left is going to have to perfect. You know, we're going to have to learn something from that. <sighs> as much as I hate to say it. Thank you. And over at number one again. Um, my question's quite closely related to the last one and picks up on the point you mentioned about the need to drive intersectionality and how we have all these really young, really suddenly passionate people coming to activism for the first time because of what's going on. And they're, all, they're full of energy, but they're also learning for the first time as they come into this that they're not the most important people in the universe. And I'm wondering, how do you keep that energy and that potential on side while, polite, while explaining at the same time that you know, you're not necessarily the most important person in the universe. Actually, there are people who have it worse than you. How do you keep them on side while also subtly pushing them in the direction that they should be moving in? Yeah, I mean, again, that's the responsibility of people with privilege and people in power who care about these issues, uh, to do that work, you know, make sure that you're communicating with people from your own community um, and policing them and making sure that they... Yeah, that, that you're not putting that, that labor on oppressed people. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than being victimized by something and being told it's your job to fix it. Um, so, you know, really just, uh, I, I try to live my life very publicly, um, partly because it's my job, but also because I think it's, a, it's helpful for peop other people to see me and see that, for example, um, I view being called out on things, like if I make a mistake, which I do because I'm uh, just a person and I'm also a, you know, a white lady who was raised in this 
in my particular bubble, um, being called out, being corrected on something, being told this thing that you wrote or this thing that you said was harmful to this community, uh, that's an opportunity every single time. It's a gift. Uh, why would I not want to be better? Why would I not want to do a better job and make myself a better activist and a better writer and a better ally? Um, and I think it's, people are really scared. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. People are really scared of, uh, you know, what if I make a mistake? And God forbid, what if someone calls me a racist? Okay, but wouldn't you rather not be racist? <laughs> like, wouldn't you rather learn how to be less racist rather than just, uh, like, be defensive and yell at people till they stop calling you a racist, which doesn't work, by the way? Um, so I think modeling that, um, that gratitude and, and trying to be graceful in those situations. And also, you know, if there are people who need to have their hand held and be sort of walked through these basic, um, you know, activism 101, anti-racism 101 conversations, that is the job of white people to do that. Um, and, and it's, again, it's another opportunity. It's an opportunity to make your world better and to, to make a difference. Okay, before we finish, final question. You said in the book that comedy broke your heart. Um, and, and after you took on the rape is not funny, you wouldn't think you'd have to argue that. But um, what do you find, and, and given what's happening in the States now, what, what makes you laugh and what do you find funny? I'm trying to end on that positive note like your book. Do you see that? <laughs> yeah, that's, no, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm just finally, uh, like me and my husband and, and our friends are just finally starting to be able to make jokes about Donald Trump. It was very grim for the first, like after the election. It was like, it was hard to get up in the morning. It was, it was really scary. And, you know, we're not, you know, we're relatively well-placed to survive this administration. Uh, you know, maybe, unless he blows us all up, which is totally possible. Um, and it's, and it's also, it was also kind of, ma like, made me angry because if the stakes weren't so high, this is the most hilarious administration ever assembled. <laughs> like, they're so incompetent, and they're so just, like, they're so nonsense. Like, they just don't, um, they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're embarrassing. Yeah, but comedy didn't work in, in the lead up to the election, did it? Everyone was laughing and I was like, this isn't funny. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. It, it certainly didn't, yeah, I mean, it didn't take down Donald Trump as, like we thought that it would. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm starting to, you, you can tell, especially now that, I think he, he really thrived in the election context, like he really loved being a candidate and running. He does not like being president <laughs> at all. And it is really satisfying because you can see that every single thing gets to him. Everything needles him. And that does make it a lot easier to laugh. Um, <laughs> like, you know he's watching Saturday Night Live every week because he <laughs> tweets about it. And like, it's so satisfying. And so that, that's sort of been my inroad back into, into laughing at this administration because uh, it feels productive. <laughs> it feels political. Um, Watching the tweets back to him are funny. I know you're not on Twitter anymore, but I know, it can I be know. very funny. Sometimes I go lurk. Back. Oh, she's a shadow in that. Uh, Lindy will be signing books in the Western foyer, so you go out and turn to the left, I think, and she will be signing her book, Shrill. Do buy it. It's very funny. You'll be nodding your head. You'll have a laugh. You'll have a cry. Thank you to our Aslan reporter. Thanks to the Opera House. Thanks to you. And thank you to Lindy West. Thank you so much. <laughs>